I've heard rumors that there's a memoir in the works. Rumors. <laughs> and uh, rumor has it. <laughs> rumor has it. I love that song. Hey, David. Hi, Amy. It's so nice to see you. I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. I know. Vacations and the holiday, Labor Day weekend. It's good to be back on screen with you. As people may not know that we're actually not in the same room at the same time, but we're never in the room at the same time. Maybe someday. I can can only dream. That'd be nice. That'd be a lot of fun. So how was your (laughs) food week this week? You know, I got to do something. So it's early September now, and Mm -hmm. we had at the end of August a week on Cape Cod, as one does. That's right. And you know what I love, David? You know Mm -hmm. what I really, truly love, and I discovered it? tell me, Amy, what do you truly (laughs) love? I love vacation house, rental house cooking. I love landing in a totally new kitchen Mm -hmm. that has like limited... Yep. Tools, right? And I love the way it forces me to just simplify and not try to overdo anything. It like yeah. gives me permission to calm the heck down. Right. And it's essential cooking. It's essential. And then you go to the store and you're like, do I really need to buy all of these ingredients? What can I make with five ingredients? Because I don't like packing up my whole kitchen before a vacation. I don't want That's to show right. up stressed. And you don't want so, to buy things, leave it on the rental for the next people. Right. But then there's always the spice cabinet that the people before you, because like <laughs> yeah. the Owners always let you have the spice cabinet. They throw yeah. out everything else. So you're like, oh, God, paprika from 1998. That's so cool. What can Yay. I do with it? <laughs> exactly. I love it. <laughs> oh, I know. When we used to go to Martha's Vineyard, we would have that same situation where we'd look through and there's the spice cabinet and they go back all the way, who knows, to what Eisenhower yeah. era, maybe. Yeah, and the labels kind of remind you of like when you were in your 20s or when, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it, it was it was fun. We rented this house. We were buying the fish from my favorite fish market in the whole world. This is this place called Hatches Fish Market mm-hmm. in Wellfleet. Everything is pristine, amazing, and they also mm. make the best smoked fish I've ever had. Oh, um, well, it's lovely. It's so good. So you go and you buy the beautiful piece of fish and some vegetables, and and then you just kind of do it really simply because that's what you have to do, and it's so good. So I had a really good Ooh, week that way. That How sounds about you? wonderful. So during my vacation, we ate our way through the freezer, or we tried to because right. there's a lot of meat that we need to use up. But what's exciting was a couple of days ago, we did what was called a Portuguese palooza. Ooh. And I'd gone to Portugalia Marketplace in Fall River, Massachusetts, and we got head-on shrimp prawns. I mean, they were huge. Mm. And then large prawns without the head, we got limpets, which we call lapage in Portuguese. You know what a limpet is? No. It's like a unipod. It just sticks to the side of a rock. Is it like a periwinkle? No, no. A periwinkle is, it sticks to the side of the rock, but it has its own shell. No, a limpet is, it's just one shell. Think of like a, a clam, but just one shell stuck to the side of a rock. Oh, I've seen those. Yeah, 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 yeah. We had that. I just did everything in garlic and butter yes. and piri piri sauce. And it was wonderful. And it was simple. It took all of 15 minutes to make. And I don't want to eat shellfish for a month. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You had your fill. Had my fill, but it was just nice to have all of that. And it had that kind of Portuguese vibe. We had a Vinho Verde. We were Mm. playing Portuguese music on the radio. So it was nice. It was a nice nice dinner. So that was about it for us. Okay, so you were just talking about 
having a sauce made with piri-piri and butter. And it's reminding me of our awesome conversation with this week's guest, Eric Kim, Mm -hmm. where he was extolling the virtues of making a sauce with gochugaru, the Korean chili flakes, Mm -hmm. with butter. Butter, yeah. Blooming, blooming the gochugaru in butter is so good. So let's talk about Eric because I love this guy. He's so... I know you do. Lovely. And I know I was fangirling a bit, but... First of all, I love the food. I love the way he teaches. Mm-hmm. I like watching the videos that he does for the New York Times. Yeah. I love the book Korean American. For me, I think a lot of it is he is so open-hearted and sort of vulnerable. He shares so much I of agree. himself. Yes, he does. And he does. it brings you in. You feel resonant with similar stories that you might have in your own life, similar feelings about food, similar feelings about uh, being, you know, X generation immigrant, you know, I'm second and third, you're first. Mm-hmm, There's mm-hmm. so much universal stuff in his story. So, and he was as delightful to talk to as well, his see, writing for is. me, setting aside the fact that he's extraordinarily good at what he does, he's extraordinarily talented and extraordinarily intelligent, is that I've never seen a young person, a young man be so centered in himself. That's mm-hmm. what I found to be a marvel. Right. He's, he's just authentically him, and he just comes from a very clear place. And I think that's reflected in his writing, which you talk a lot about in the interview, and also from his cooking. You yeah. just feel that. Yeah, love it. So let's hop over to the interview so people can hear what we're talking about. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, we're going to be talking about your book, Korean American, your wonderful book, Korean American, in just a minute. But many people know about you through your work in the New York Times. Can you tell us about working there and what you do? Yeah, it's it's kind of a dream job. Mm. I, If ever I'm having a stressful week or I'm you know, rolling towards a deadline, I have to remind myself what a fun job it is and how lucky I am. Not least because it's really the people you get to work with. Everyone's just so talented at the top of their game, but also some of my editors have been in the game for decades and are just so knowledgeable and Mm. good at teaching. And so I I feel selfish that I get to be this student here and learn from everyone. And I'd like to think people are also learning from me, but there's a lot of collaboration that's just so fun. And it's not something that you really get to see on the page probably, but that kind of environment is, I've just like, long for it my whole life and it, it feels really good to good to be here yeah yeah i when i was freelancing for the times pete wells was the dining editor and my gosh did i learn from that man oh he was oh. an incredible editor oh yeah but those are the days yeah i've heard stories <laughs> from those yeah. days <laughs> so you write you're a regular recipe contributor to the times and then you also write for the magazine i write a monthly column for the New York Times Magazine, and these are more like personal essays or mm-hmm. narrative, kind of memoir style. And that's sort of like this wonderful monthly anchor where I get to uh, kind of obsess about one food item. I usually like to like wax lyrical about one very simple thing and make people rethink it. And kind of my most recent one was a spaghetti al pomodoro mm. that I had in Italy. Italy. And mm. as I was developing that recipe, I kept taking out ingredients. I found that it didn't need the basil or the parm or the onion or the butter. And that was really satisfying. I usually don't cook like that. I'm usually pretty, when I'm cooking in my own kitchen, I like to fortify with flavor. But 
this was like this discovery that I really wanted to share with people. And I think that's the fun that I get to have mm-hmm. um, for that monthly column. Mm. But I also um, develop recipes for NYT cooking that are just dinners. And also uh, I've been reporting lately, which is kind of a new skill that I'm trying to learn and trying to get better at. And I work with the best on the food desk. So once in a while, I get to do that. My latest one was um, about kimchi. And before yeah. that, I reported on the Chicago dog, which is really fun because yeah. I got to go to Chicago and eat some hot dogs. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've taken readers through Thanksgiving 101. You've done the deep dive on cooking with eggs. Mm-hmm. Also taken readers through your favorite Korean dishes. Is there a sweet spot for you, like a type of recipe development that you love to do, a style of cooking that you especially love to do? I'm really inspired by Italy because when I went to Italy this summer, I had so much good food in Milan and Bologna and Lake Como. It was kind of like this tour de force of simple ingredients, but like maximal potential, you know, and it was just really a lesson for me to eat this food where I could taste the three or four ingredients. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everything working in such harmony and where the umami of the vegetable is like has reached its peak. Those are some flavors that have really inspired me. So lately, I have been really enjoying the minimal recipes because there's no greater joy than getting feedback from a reader who, you know, is trying the recipe and they're like, I don't know about this. It's only like a few ingredients. Right. But when you can surprise them with a new flavor with just those few ingredients, it's very, very it's very satisfying. Yeah. You're like the new yeah. New York Times minimalist. There was <laughs> Mark Bittman and now, Mark we have, Bittman. now we have you, Eric Kim. I'm, I'm always copying my um, predecessors or at least like <laughs> I, I'm reading their older columns all the time. Yeah, Nigella used to write for the Times mm-hmm. and that's a big, big name for me personally because she's sort of my hero. Mm. Yeah. Now, how about the top three favorite recipes that you've developed or published? Because they're and like it, all oh, our, yeah. you know, they're always our children when we develop these recipes and, <laughs> and you feel special attachments to them. But what are your top three? Wow. Um, I have a gochujang glazed eggplant that it was one of my first recipes I ever developed for the Times. It was before I joined on staff. Mm-hmm. And it was the first one of my recipes that I saw really kind of take off and kind of in like the internet way, you know, it was all over Instagram. It kind of has like a, a noticeable look because of the fried scallions and I also just love this recipe because it's kind of involved. It's not hard, but it, there's like a step where you have to fry the scallion and then you drain it and then you fry the two batches of eggplants and then you have to make a sauce. And I think it's kind of involved, but a lot of people do it. Mm. A lot of people still slice those scallions. That's like my greatest, um, not regret because it's worth it, slicing them, like julienning scallions like that. But it's also really hard because yeah. they're just so little. Yeah. And <laughs> but I just love that all these people still follow the recipe and it is good. It's like worth it. And I just like that that recipe shows that people are looking for cooking that's cooking and people do want to get involved sometimes in the kitchen. It's not always like easy breezy, but because even the tomato sauce, which is definitely top three for me, mm-hmm. it's like a three ingredient recipe, but the sauce takes 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like you have to strain it. And I have all these, when I call for straining, mm-hmm. that means I'm, I really mean it because I, I hate to, I hate straining so much. <laughs> I hate sifting. None of my cakes will have sifting. It's usually like separately in a bowl. You have to like whisk the flour with the sugar together. Anyway, those two are definitely top of mind for me just because of their, their reach. Mm. But I think the third one I will say is sort of like a sleeper hit, meaning that it came out maybe a couple summers ago. It's a jalapeno, what is it? It's a jalapeno marinated grilled pork chop. Mm. And mm-hmm. it's it's pretty chill. It's pretty chill. It's like the marinade is very much flavored with 
the fruit mm-hmm. because it's it's pureed into like all these garlic cloves and cilantro and olive oil. It's, it's quite simple, but the chlorophyll in it, it's like mm. so green. So yeah. when you grill it, I call them um, reptar bar green. It's sort of like a reference to Rugrats for yeah. people who <laughs> right. you know, watch Nickelodeon in the 90s. But it's very, um, it's very like psychedelic green. And hmm. I love that recipe because the few people who have made it really love it. It's like a five-star recipe. And I like that it's like privately, quietly, like doing well on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, so that, that sort of has a soft spot in my heart because it's... Um, I think it's a really delicious recipe. It just hasn't had much airtime. I've never made a video. I've never like talked about it, never written about it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about what you're working on now. I've heard rumors that there's a memoir in the works. Rumors. <laughs> and, Rumor uh, has it. Rumor has it. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> I'm so excited about that because you, I love your writing. I had this image of you sort of, cooking and sort of thoughtfully choosing ingredients and that there's sort of that similar approach to the way you write and talk. There's an aesthetic quality to words that appeal to you and similarly with food. So I'm very excited to read that uh, very long way of saying that. Sorry, TikTok, TikTok. (laughs) Yeah, Um, okay. (laughs) Point, Amy. What's your point, Amy? Get to the question. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) So tell me about what you're working on now. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that you think it's like this carefully chosen I, I i do edit pretty profusely but i i think of it as like the whole kitchen's a mess and like every spice is out yeah. and there are like multiple versions of that chicken or whatever it is i'm working on and it's really in the editing where i'm sort of someone who vomits on the page and then editors help mm-hmm. me kind of rein it in yeah what i put down on the page it's like you know you end up seeing 20 percent of it but i think that's like a good thing i think that's a good editor mm. um someone to hold me back and less is always more mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. but uh <laughs> Uh, right now, what am I working on? I just filed a Salisbury steak. I think mm-hmm. I'm allowed to say. Ooh. Yeah. I, I wow, really big like TV that. dinner vibes for me. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, we were and, kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I haven't I haven't really written about TV dinners, you know, at length. So I'm, I'm excited to explore that. I have a chapter in the book, but it was more of a, you know, a small like introduction. But so yeah, I, I'd also never put out a Salisbury steak recipe, which. I do have a mac and cheese recipe, and to me, those two always go together. Yeah, of, like, they do. They do. Stouffer's would be very proud of you. Mm-hmm. I think the nostalgia factor of these foods is really powerful, and I think also another thing for me about Stouffer's is like everyone has their own thing that they really associate with their childhood. So, okay, I was just talking to a friend last night. His name is John Kung. Mm-hmm. He's like a great chef and writing a cookbook right now, and well, he was like saying that. Those dishes are really salty, so it's nice to eat them with white rice. Like, that's what mm-hmm. we did growing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had my Salisbury steak with the mac and cheese, but I needed a bowl of white rice wow. to go with it. And, and so when I was eating this Salisbury steak at home with my mother, because I was, like, testing it at home, I was like, this needs mashed potatoes. And she was like, no, it needs rice. And mm. I was like, you're right. That's a great idea. And certainly non-Asians, I'm sure, like, eat their Salisbury steak with, like, rice. Probably it's, like, Uncle Ben's or, like, something like long, <laughs> right. Grain, right. long grain. But that has the time and place, I think. Yeah. Yeah especially with some butter and the rice, you know? Yeah. So talking about careers, you share something with Dory Greenspan and Patty Heenich. Do you know that? I do. Oh, I love them. I very much look up to them. Do you know what it is? Were they academics? Yes, exactly. Okay. They were academics and they just oh. took a hard left or a hard right <laughs> and went to food. Now you have multiple degrees from Columbia. How did you know that food writing and food and cooking was really your path, your poor parents having put you through Columbia and now you're in food? Yeah, yeah. They were always very supportive, but 
when I told them I was going to the Food Network after dropping out of Columbia, they were like, well, you could always go back. And every year I was like, are you going to get finish your degree? And, <laughs> you know, since I was in 10th grade of high school, I had amazing English teachers and I loved English mm. courses. And I decided that young that I wanted to be an English professor. I was like, I'd like to live that life because even then I knew that it was a life of kind of leisure and scholarship. The leisure is in the form of like not moving around much. You just like stay at your desk. Mm. And I like that idea because I'm not a very like athletic person and <laughs> I like sitting down and I like being horizontal the most. But yeah, I always I say think, that the uh, most athletic thing I've ever done is jump to conclusions. It's like <laughs> the most athletic thing I've done. So I understand. Yeah. Anyway, um, I really enjoyed the school part. I really enjoyed my courses. I graduated a year early from college so I could go straight into a PhD and I just like knew what I wanted to do. I thought I did. And then the first two years were really fun because it was school still, mm -hmm. it was grad school. And then the third year was just a year of teaching and reading and for a, a huge exam at the end of the year. And I remember um, that day so vividly. I like wore, I bought a new suit. I wore like a new tie. I went to my exam and I just like absolutely bombed it because I, I was like a 23 year old who didn't know how to speak, you know, mm. in public and to adults. And I was just so young and um, I had a hard time, you know, leaving because mm -hmm. it felt like failure. It was like the greatest failure of my life. But, yeah. you know, I ended up having a really lovely lunch with one of my old bosses at the Food Network and I actually wrote about it in the book. Yeah. It's for the Spam and Perilla Kimbap recipe yeah. that kind of details this one lunch that I had with her and she sort of she just offered me a job. I didn't know where it would lead, but it taught me that, man, you never know where you're going to end up. Yeah, sort of, yeah. absolutely I just not. took that job and so discovered true. food writing, and it all sort of happened from there. It was all really random, to be honest. So you've written about being sort of constitutionally a pretty shy person, and now you have a much more public-facing life. Was food something where you felt like you could, there was a place for you to kind of be in the kitchen quietly developing recipes, and then it actually led you out into the world. But maybe for a while, food felt like kind of a safe harbor. I love that. I never thought about it that way, actually. But it is true. I think a reason I love my job so much is I get to be, for the most part, a hermit. And I get to sort of stay um, indoors. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the point is, as an introvert, everyone thinks it means that you're shy necessarily or something like that. I think it has to do with the way my energy is yes. you know, processed, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I gain a lot of energy by being alone and by doing creative things and cooking and writing. Those are the things that fuel me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it also needs a place to go. So once in a while I will, I love doing interviews and I actually love audio because I don't have to show my face and, you know. <laughs> so it's like a, it's a nice balance. It's just like a career that works for me and to be honest, it's it's not that dissimilar to being a professor, I think, except I'm, maybe I'm the student this time. And mm. I, get, I think I've always just liked being a student. I like teaching too, but mm -hmm. I like being a student. I think food yeah. writing, especially because food intersects with so many disciplines, history, biology, but it, yeah. it is like yeah. being a liberal arts student for your life if you can get lucky yeah. enough to do it as a career. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel very lucky and have to pull myself back from... Uh, going too off the rails. I, I like food because you get to write about other things, but sometimes the essay will be about the other things yeah. and not about food. Yeah. And my editor will be like, where's the, where's the recipe? <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> you didn't do the classical, you didn't go from Columbia to like the CIA. And I think David and I both learned our craft by doing it, not yeah. by going to school. We didn't, yeah. 
When did you feel like, yeah, I can cook and I'm enough of an authority to tell other people how to cook? I don't know. I think I still have the imposter syndrome over the years as I have to answer the question in interviews and stuff. No one, no one cares anymore, but right. uh, you know, there was a period in my life where I was like, yeah, I kind of like skipped. It's not that I skipped <laughs> all of it. It's that I think I, I tried to define my generation as a different generation. Like I called us the Food Network babies. We're sort of people who learn from media mm-hmm. and it doesn't make my cooking less authentic or real. But I will say it took doing this job. This was my first like full-time recipe developer job, full-time like staff writer job. I was always like an editor before or just like a monthly columnist or something. But I have this environment where I'm doing a lot of repetition and learning through repetition. And so I, I very much respect people who went to culinary school. I respect people who put in their time at restaurants. I put in my time in other ways. Like I learned by by reading a lot and by doing a lot. And, sure. and because I'm less trained, I think, the way I develop recipes is I think I repeat mm-hmm. more. I like I'm in there a little more and I need to cook it a few more times mm-hmm. than maybe some of my colleagues who are more experienced. I definitely recognize that and it's all like a learning process. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's like, do you want to learn how to make better bread? Like would you like to test this recipe? Right. There are these opportunities like that. And I consider this culinary school, I would say this is like the way to learn yeah. how to cook, I think. <laughs> so talking about writing, tell us about your New York Times best selling book, Korean American. Congratulations. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you. And so why did you write it? And talk about your mom's role in that. I was like scared to write about Korean food because I was thinking to myself, who am I? I, I'm like a, I'm just a kid. What do I know about Korean food? So I really framed it around my mother and she is the expert. But what I realized through the process of cooking it was that this book is about my relationship to her cooking Mm. and how her cooking can evolve, you know, through me, but also through the way we write down our recipes. So one main thesis of the book is to write down your family recipes before it's too late. Yes. Sort of this like tagline that I I kept saying. And I think it's something that we were all thinking about during the pandemic and still are. Mm -hmm. And it, it really was a pandemic book. I think we tried to edit it in a way where it was, you know, evergreen and that's what Mm -hmm. we want. But, um, I really do think that without the pandemic, without the lockdown, like I would not have, spent this quality time with my family. And you were there for a long time, right? You went home and lived with them? Yeah, yeah, for like nine months. And so now when I go back, I I try to stay a little longer. And I don't know, our relationship has changed so much. I think that notion of capture your family's recipes while you can is such a very vital message. It's what I came out of the gate with in 1998 when I wrote my first article. It was about preserving your family memories. Back then it was with handheld video cameras. Of course, they didn't have phones or anything. It was about preserving it because my grandmother died and I realized recipes died with her and no one could make them the same way. And so I think it's great that you had your mom and you got them down because people are losing their heritage Mm-hmm. And part of the heritage is expressed through food. Yeah. I also think there's another aspect to it. There are plenty of people who have lost their parents, including people in my family. To those people, I, I also make a point in the book to say that taste memory is always there. And that's sort of a really powerful tool to kind of reconstitute memories of an old dish or an old story or whatever it is. This book is called Korean American, and this is really about documenting both the food you grew up with, but also the Korean American food that you encountered in other parts of the country, like LA. So first of all, tell me about that. Tell me about like specifically why Korean American. So one thing I really 
really mean by that title is that it's an American cookbook. Korean is the adjective for American. Korean food is American food now mm-hmm. in 2022. That's sort of like what I was trying to express because there are various ways to be Korean. And I think for the longest time, people who were seeing Korean food in media, people seem to have this like definition of what it should be when it's like represented to the public. Mm-hmm. But I've been really examining this impulse to coin something like not authentic or mm-hmm. like my mom's Korean and or like I'm Korean and that's not Korean. It was a huge anxiety for me in the very beginning while I was developing this book, but towards the end it became like my anthem and I was like, you know what? This book is like a response to all those people. Mm-hmm. This is a response to the word authenticity, which is a sham. It's important to acknowledge that there are various ways to cook one dish and but it's a very political process and I think I've over time instead of being feeling like annoyed at those people or belligerent mm-hmm. or something quietly. I feel a lot of empathy for them and I, I kind of understand where they are in their journey towards like seeing their food represented. It's not always like a positive experience. It's like, oh, I don't recognize that. That doesn't represent me. And so there is also this kind of anxiety that you have to represent everyone. And I keep trying to say it in every opportunity I get that I'm just one Korean and sea of Koreans. And it's important that mm-hmm. we don't place representation on like one person. So can you give just one quick example of a dish that is made, that that was, that was evolved here in response to ingredients that were available or not? Because I've heard you talk about a couple and it's it's really cool. Yeah, I think LA Kaibi is a great example. You were describing California before and in Korea, Kaibi was cut a different way, but in America, we really recognize those three oblong bones, you know, and the, the thinly sliced flank and cut, they call it, short ribs. And that's a really specific cut to the city. It was like, you know, it was originated in. I think that's really special because the dish kairi is like marinated grilled short rib. But the cut, that specific cut that's become like ubiquitous, especially in California, but in the United States, in New York, in Atlanta, I love that it came from California. Mm-hmm. You can like see it physically in that the manifestation of that dish. And there are plenty of other examples like that that I think are really special and interesting. <laughs> Initially, they couldn't get the same cut of meat, and so they adapted it, right. and then it became the canon for yeah. that place. Yeah, exactly. And when people adapt, the food sometimes takes on a life of its own. I think that's like really special. And sometimes what's really great is it ends up in Korea again. It like mm. comes back <laughs> to Korea. <laughs> it's like this is American style. Yes, it's very you know, true. Whatever, and that's really cool. Yeah. So let's talk about home cooking, because I love the way you teach how to cook at home. So your book has this really fun section called That Boring Pantry Section in Every Cookbook, But More Fun. (laughs) It is more fun than the typical pantry section. And you go through, you know, ingredients that if you want to cook from this book, this is what you need. If I want to just have like, you know, the essential ingredients for my pantry for weeknight cooking so I could do a decent number of things. What would you recommend? And can you talk brands if you have a really favorite brand? Sure. I would recommend gochukaru. Gochukaru is the Korean red pepper powder. It's sort of the Korean pepper that um, you will see in gochujang and and in kimchi. So it's sort of like, you know these things, kimchi and gochujang, but do you know what they're made of? Mm, and mm-hmm. this one ingredient has a lot of power. It's it's mm-hmm. such a fragrant pantry item. And I'm trying to get people to really access its powers. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, I really like, I love blooming it in butter. Mm. And it sort of g- gives the whole dish at the end, like this wonderful um, 
almost like caramel flavor because gochugaru like tastes mm. almost like fermented. It's like it's just like mm-hmm. a delicious chili pepper. Yeah, yeah. And I I think kim is something that I really think about a lot. Kim is the Korean roasted seaweeds. Yeah. Sometimes they're marketed yeah. as snacks, and and Korean people do eat them as snacks sometimes. Trader Joe's. It's also like, yeah, Trader <laughs> Joe's will be in that those lines, yeah. but it is a um, great ingredient to cook with. I like crushing it into all manner of things. So it's like a childhood favorite, but I've sort of really leaned into like throwing it into food, like grits. I like mm. making shrimp and grits with some of that seaweed and. Mm-hmm. I do a sour cream dip with the seaweed puree in there as well. And it just gives it this umami mm. kind of savory taste. It's mm. really nice. Now, you recently wrote a column titled, If You Can Make Salad, You Can Make Kimchi for the right. Times. <laughs> now, what are some of the less expected ways that you can use homemade kimchi? Because I think people think, oh, I made kimchi and I'll just eat it because it's a fermented food. It's good for my microbiome and I'll put it on the side. What are some of the kind of unusual ways that you can use it? Mm, one of my favorite ways is really cooked down. Like, so the exact opposite of the fresh and crunchy pickled flavor. It's, um, there's a recipe in the book called kimchi braised short ribs mm-hmm. with pasta. And, you know, I love cooking short ribs and cooking them down, but I like to take like three hours, two to three hours, really like get it melty. But when you have kimchi in there with it and it's sort of like a kimchi braising liquid, mm-hmm. The kimchi becomes spoonable. It's like so soft mm. that you can eat it with a spoon. And the short ribs have like the fat has kind of gone into the kimchi juice. And when you toss all that with pasta, it's really special. I made it for Tamarin Hall recently. And like some of these recipes I developed years ago, mm-hmm. you know, a couple years ago, it's like it's been a while. And mm-hmm. I'm always like, oh yeah, I, I really love this dish. But yeah, that's something that <laughs> I would do with it. I like uh, sauteing it briefly because mm-hmm. it gets some like caramelized edges and that tastes really good in a baked potato with sour cream and cheese. Mm. Kimchi pairs really well with dairy. They foil each other really nicely. Right. So when you're writing, you're writing for a broad audience. And I'm curious, because I think this is a constantly shifting thing. How much familiarity do you assume your audience has with certain ingredients, techniques, and not just with Korean food, but, you know, any kind of food? I think as food writers, we're kind of trying to gauge like, well, what will people already understand and what do I have to explain? You know, yeah. yeah. Tell me about your process with that. Writing for the Times is pretty different from the book, but I will say that there's a through line, which is I always sort of identify or define where I can. If not, like right away, I'll do it in a contextual sentence following. Like I used to write much more like, oh, you can look it up. Like, you don't know what Gochugado is? Well, you know, Tough. That's your fault. And <laughs> yeah. I, I used to feel that way. I was like, you're going to come to me. Like, But I, I think over time, I've become much softer. And I just assume that no one knows anything. And mm-hmm. But I, you know, the way you write, it's like, I want to entertain and teach people who know a lot and also teach people who don't know anything. And it's mm. the same audience to me. Right. It's just the way you write. You want to delight people. And mm-hmm. if I can teach them at the same time, that's really satisfying. There's one trick I like to say, because... I think it's just inherently like it makes people's lives better. Uh-huh. And that's my egg cracking trick, which is, uh, you know, when you like soft boil an egg or right. hard boil, but it's certainly when you soft boil an egg, you know how like sometimes it can be really hard to peel. Yeah. Yeah. I learned that shocking the egg while it's warm with mm-hmm. cold water helps. So I take the water out with my like asbestos hands. You can use a glove or figure out a safer way to do it. Sometimes I just actually drain it and I like shake the pot a little bit and right. crack the edges of the egg. And then the cold water, you know, goes in and it's like, it's when the cold water hits the hot egg under the shell 
that's like why it like becomes like easier to peel because the egg sort of does this. Right. Once I learned that, it changed my life, and I love showing people that, and that they try it and it works for them. Because uh-huh. it's no one tells you that. Everyone's always yeah. like, boil the boil the egg and peel, stoke, uh, peel soak it. it in water. Yeah. Soak yeah. it in cold water and let the. But that's actually like the opposite. Right. That like makes the white fuse onto the shell. Anyway, I thought a lot about that. <laughs> that's, that's something I really want people to know. So thank you yeah, for that. That's really great. Fun. We love we love useful tips. We, we do. Really do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna be jumping into our lightning round. We're gonna ask you questions. Just don't think, just answer. So first, what is your go to meal to make when you're dead tired? Kedanbap. It's egg rice, which is like a fried egg into leftover rice with soy sauce and sesame oil. Mm. Usually, like seaweed. Yum. That's like my go-to. Good. Multiple times a week. Yeah. All right. Well, how about best time-saving trick in the kitchen? Best time-saving trick. Um, I keep kosher salt in a little easy-to-open container right by the stove. Mm-hmm. Right. Just having kosher salt ready yep. so that I can always reach for a pinch. I think that's time-saving. It's yeah. Just people, like you know, <laughs> yeah, like measuring it, it into yeah. Into yeah. Their, yeah, just like just have a thing dedicated to kosher salt for yourself, and your life will change. And salt is really important in cooking. Your favorite food, TV show, or movie? Oh, I don't know if this one really counts, but I love watching The Family Stone. There's a lot of food in the movie. There there's is, like yes. Thanksgiving yeah. dinner. There's like a there's like this Christmas strata that ends up all over Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> um, that's sort of my go-to holiday like food movie. Properly food movie would probably be Ratatouille. I, mm. I love watching that. It's just like that kitchen is so gorgeous. All that like copper. It's animation. Yeah. I, yeah. Like animation a lot. I like animation. Yeah. yeah. Um, how about your most beaten up cookbook? Oh, Nigella Lawson Feast. It's mm. actually so bad that I need to get another copy. Another copy. The pages were like, it was like really wet. And like, <laughs> I, I'm like kind of a messy cook. And so. they stick Me together. Too. Yeah, it's like ruined. I need to get another one. And your greatest faux pas in the kitchen ever? Oh, definitely. One time I lined the bottom of a gas oven. I didn't know it was a gas oven. Um, I, you know, I grew up with electric ovens and it lit on fire. And this was Thanksgiving day in a, in a college dorm room and the entire dorm had to evacuate and I ruined everyone's Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, no. I told that story a few times, but it's kind of bad. So. <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> All right. What's the last best thing you ate? Mm. Last night I was at Mel's Pizza and mm-hmm. I had a really good Negroni on tap. That wasn't something I ate, but I like the Negroni on tap. I just like the, I don't know, I like the idea that you could get it on tap. It's like unlimited or something. Yeah. But that meal was really good. Um, we had, it was like a salad. I honestly forgot what it was, but it had like tomatoes all over it. But the star was this zucchini and yellow squash in there it was just so so flavorful it was like briefly charred but i remember taking a bite of that and then my friend took a bite of it and we were both looking at each other like that's the best squash i've ever Mm. tasted like it was so squashy so i don't know how to explain it i love when like vegetables taste very of themselves yeah that was a nice moment where i was like this is fleeting and i'll never taste this again you know i just made that famous stanley tucci zucchini pasta and the trick is you fry the zucchini before you and it really just i've never had such concentrated zucchini flavor Mm. and you don't brown it you just fry it till it's just golden and it's so sweet Mm. Really good. Lovely, lovely. Yeah, yeah, you're really big into that frying zucchini lately. <laughs> and, That's one of your things. I'm really into frying all the summer vegetables. Eggplant, yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. You're That's right. That was eggplant. 
<laughs> and our last question, the most underappreciated Korean food. Oh, I've always wanted to say um, tenjang jjigae because, and I say that not as like, a lot of home cooks love tenjang jjigae, like Koreans themselves eat that at home, but it's so simple that you don't think to mention it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are on team kimchi jjigae, but um, kimchi jjigae and tenjang jjigae are kind of like sisters, I think. And tenjang jjigae is the one that has my heart. And it's a dish that I, I really tried to like get out there and, it's something that you maybe not wouldn't think to order at a restaurant, but it, it comes out with Korean barbecue sometimes. It's a soybean paste stew that's just so hearty and really special and I think the OG of stews. And mm-hmm. I'm just trying to get more people to buy tenjang and to like care about it. Tenjang mm-hmm. is just such a magical thing and yeah. it's so often just I know this is a lightning round, but uh, <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been trying to I've been trying to get Tenjang out there, and I think people just still comment, "Oh, this was great! I substituted it with miso, and it was yeah. awesome." And it's like, ugh, ugh, it's like not miso; <laughs> it's not the same thing. They're not even close, but it's going to take a while to get people there. I think, but mm-hmm. I want people to know about Tenjang Jiga. Mm, yeah, great, it's great. Well, yeah. thank you so, so much, much, Eric. You you really Thanks. write with so much heart, and it truly comes through. I mean, talking to you is like an extra level of that. But I think the reason, you know, your readers respond so much is, is the heart and the genuineness, the genuineness. genuineness. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. This was so fun. And I would, I would say the same about your podcast. It's like such a joyful kind of space. So I appreciate you having me. Thank Thank you. you. Eric Kim is a cooking writer for the food section and NYT Cooking and a columnist for the New York Times Magazine. He's based in New York, but is a native of Atlanta. His first book, Korean American Food That Tastes Like Home, was published this year in 2022. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Eric June Ho. Talking With My Mouthful is produced by Overt Studios, and our producer is the well-preserved but never pickled, Adam Claremont. You can reach Adam and Overt Studios at overtstudios.com. And remember to follow Talking With My Mouthful wherever you download your favorite podcasts. As always, if you like what you hear and want to support us, leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Ciao. Bye, David. <laughs>